first podcast ever Reading my script like I don't know, know my shit What is going on guys, Danny Feng here And if you're wondering why this episode is so freaking long It's because this is my first podcast ever And our first guest in this little series is the one and only Simon Cade For those who don't know Simon Cade, he's a UK-based creative director and the founder of the YouTube channel called DSLR Guide, steadily growing at 600k plus subscribers. So I met Simon on a project of his a few years back when I did some on-set sound for a short film of his. And finally today we're just gonna properly sit down, pick his brain and chat and really just hang out and just see where this goes. So without any further ado, this is my first episode of my podcast series with our guest Simon Cade. Simon K, hey, thanks for uh, wanting to jump on actually my first ever podcast. And um, yeah, it's a little bit, it's just a little bit scary. And um, (laughs) I hope everything goes, goes all right. But uh, I've been wanting to actually do this thing with you for, for a while, but it's just like last time when we were trying to organize like the, all the Skype meetings and stuff like that. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, things always got in the way and yeah. And like uh, you were doing your own thing. I had like shoots and all kinds of stuff happening as well, but uh, it's, it's exciting finally that you know to talk to you properly and actually record it and hopefully just pick your brains a bit and yeah 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 our schedules finally aligned <laughs> yeah it's worked out well um i guess the first thing that i always like to ask um ask like my friends who are in the film industry and now i would like to ask you is what what got you into filmmaking in in you know when, in the beginning what made you want to pick up a camera and just say hey you know i want to make I want to make movies. Hmm. Uh, I think for me, it was a specific event uh, at school, about 11 years old, and um, we just had a a school project that was to to make a video, and that was my really my first experience of uh, making a narrative film. So so like the simple task of filming someone walk down the street right. and then stop the cameras move to a to ahead of where they just walked and then start again you know and when you cut it together the idea that that makes a continuous uh sequence right. just that simple idea that i'd never thought of as a as someone who watched movies uh that was just really interesting and exciting so mm. it was kind of just like a, a random project at school that I stumbled into hmm. uh, and just f- thought it was a lot of fun and like a really cool thing to do and then basically yeah just from there every school project we got we would I'd convince my friends to you know make a video out of it if 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 we could um, and so so that was really how it started it was just school projects and then it became weekends and making little action short films the kind of classic classic 12 uh, year old short films <laughs> Heavily inspired by Freddie Wong, of course, oh. and uh, yeah, that was that's it. Kind of just went from there. Oh, that's incredible! And uh, are, are these short films actually available to the public? Because I, I I always ask um, a lot of people like to to kind of just see their their I guess their first <laughs> beginnings of work, you know, just to kind of like, oh yeah, you know, this is how this is how it was back then, and you know, what are the things that we would change now and stuff like that. Yeah, they're they're not online. <laughs> they're, they're not public. Right. in full but across the, uh, some of my youtube videos i've i've referenced them and i've shown clips and stuff 
So if you dig deep enough, you can yeah. you can find <laughs> find little bits. And uh, w- uh, when was the point where where you decided to want to open a YouTube channel and start uh, sharing all these ideas and and helpful educational things in the in the film industry? Because uh, I remember when I, I think I discovered your YouTube channel probably like I think it was like a year and a half ago, maybe two years, I think. Okay. So, so at, at that point, do you remember what like what the general topics were? Was it was it very equipment heavy? Because that's how it all started. Well, I saw some of your early stuff, which was a lot of like equipment things. But the one, yeah. the, the 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 video that I saw, I think it was to do with grading and how grading changes the tone of um, of the story. And I think you took like a still from like James Bond or something. And you were like okay. uh, changing the color. I thought that that was amazing. I was just like, wow, who's this guy? You know. And then I started looking at your other videos, and I was just like, this guy, this guy's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I realized that all of your stuff were just shot on a Canon Canon 60D or is it 600D? 600D. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is something that you're still shooting, and which is still mind blowing. And I think a lot of the audience out there are still um, take, I guess, take that as a as inspiration that they don't really need crazy gear to actually tell a story yeah 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 i mean so it it was that camera really that started it off was because i'd done i'd done so much research into all the equipment i wanted to buy i was like we do you know really really tight on money so i was saving up for about a year before i could get my my camera um and i so i wanted to make sure i i didn't spend too much money on something that wasn't good so I did so much research. Um, on I I must have spent more time researching than I actually did making <laughs> stuff. Um, and so then that was when I realized, like, A, I'm, I was just obsessed with it. So I was talking about it all the time to my friends, to my family, who really didn't understand or didn't really care. Um, and B, I did have, as in that aspect of what to buy if you're a beginner, I did know what I was talking about because I'd, I'd put in the hours. So I thought, you know, A, I can vent and just talk about this stuff that I'm so interested in, and B, someone else might find it useful if they're in a similar position to me. Right. Um, and that was that was how it started, was just by, uh, it was, the videos were literally just, you know, here's what you should buy, here's what I think of this product. Um, if you've got $300 to spend, then, you know, here's some audio gear that, that will get you, get you set up without spending too much. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, it basically slowly developed into more uh, technique-based things as I started to realize that equipment wasn't everything, and it's more about how you use the equipment. And then more recently, trying to get a bit more creative and kind of go back to the roots of storytelling and filmmaking rather than just the the equipment and what you do with it. Yeah, that's really interesting because that's, uh, because I come from... Um, a sound engineering background and mm-hmm. I, I kind of fell into the same pit as you I guess I started the whole sound engineering um, path just because I loved music and I loved audio uh, in general like even like in films and stuff like that and um, I remember when I was in college and shortly after college as well I was just I, I realized that I was just so op- obsessed with with gear to the point right. where right. where you kind of lost touch on why you started in the first place you know and it, it's it's never about the gear really is just about you know how you're telling the story, whether it be visually or musically, and yeah, and I, I found myself, as you said, like just 
lost in hours and hours on the internet, like reading things and <laughs> oh my god, yeah, it was crazy. I, I think I think at one point I think when I was when I discovered your channel, I think I was still secretly um like a massive uh, right gearhead. Right. So I was just just trying to like see other opinions out there and what equipments to use and stuff. Because I think at that time I wasn't even um, shooting on on um, on the camera that I'm shooting right now, the can the the, um, the Panasonic GH4. Because back then I think I was shooting on like a Canon EOS M, like the first first one that ever came out. So which so. Um, yeah, and when I wanted to buy that camera, I remember I did like crazy research just to just to like um, see what works for me and what do people think about you know the camera and the, the noise ratio and just all, all, all kinds of things and, and then like I did my first film and I was just like well I can't really tell a story because I don't have the skills to tell a story and, yeah. I just, and I thought like yeah you know I think I need to back off a gear a little bit and kind of like um, focus on the art of actually like telling a good story yeah. basically at the end of the day yeah it's it's weird how like I think I guess we we justify it by there is uh, obviously better equipment does have a positive effect on the film so that's yeah. that's where we that's where it all sparks from um, but then that I think just links up with the like natural like consumerist attitude and like the the same thing that makes people want to collect you know toys or items <laughs> or just you know <laughs> things it's it, that same thing just like drives us to just get completely focused on it so much that it, it actually is having a, a negative effect, I think. Yeah. Um, like you say, because the, cause there, was nothing, there was no space and no time left to think about the storytelling. Yeah. But it's, it's weird. People do, I've had a lot of people say to me, like, why can't you just have good equipment and good films? You know, why, yeah. can't, I be in, why can't I enjoy the equipment and enjoy the creative side? Mm. It's like, if you can do that, fine. But I just know from my personal experience that as soon as I start getting into that, kind of going down that rabbit hole I just get start thinking about all the wrong things yeah that's true and uh, I find myself that I still get caught up with with um, that kind of mentality I guess but right I guess right. I, I guess to a certain degree you still have to be kind of conscious on uh, what you're getting to kind of serve what story you want to tell but when you start like picking all these tiny tiny details and and like um, things that I guess not really necessary mm. then and then you, you start to like ask for more budget, say, yeah, we need this and that. And just like, yeah, but you know, is it really necessary? Like that does it actually tell the story any different? Yeah. Yeah. The, the best pro example is like a follow focus, which when I was, I was you know, 15 and I didn't have, I don't think I had a proper audio recorder yet. Right. And yet I was looking at this follow focus, a thing to, to, so that you don't have to use your hands to focus the lens and I was thinking I need that that is gonna <laughs> help for some reason that was my idea of like I was at the top of my list right and that's just so that's so odd um, but it was just it just like represented a professional thing that you see on Hollywood film sets so it's like right. it, it's necessary and <laughs> you can justify it by looking at like oh yeah well it helps it helps you know vibrations on the lens you know if you can use if you can twist it and that's fine if you've if you've spent you know millions on your actors and you've spent millions on everything else then fine spend you know a couple thousand on a, on a photo focus but that was not the situation i was in so uh yeah but it's it's weird how how that just that seems to be the natural starting point for 
for most most filmmakers at least yeah, yeah. is to be just entirely obsessive i read an article somewhere that um someone said like yeah you can have like a shoulder rig with a camera but a shoulder rig with a matte box makes you look like 10 times yeah. cooler or something just like you don't really need a matte box but it's it's the ultimate uh it makes it look like a, like a film camera not yeah. just a, <laughs> yeah. a little camera but speaking uh speaking of budget um i mean i, I know you've done some short films in, including the one that we actually worked on um a couple of years ago i was yeah. i was doing sound for that yeah that was really fun yeah. i remember the thing that i wanted to ask you is what are the ratio for a budget breakdown when it comes to making a short film in your opinion i d I, d I did a bit of research about this um mm for a video and I think the example I, I looked at was Gone Girl mm. and uh, basically just the top you know Hollywood movies um, obviously they're shooting on expensive cameras but the the price the amount they spend on cameras is is such a small percentage of the total budget so the Gone Girl example I think was that um they sp spent at least 50% of the budget on actors, I think. Um, and I don't know exactly how it works as far as, like, obviously they spend a lot on distribution and advertising. I'm not sure how those costs come in. Mm. But the point is they spend a huge, huge proportion on actors mm. um, because I think they, they, they know that actors make money mm. and they improve the quality. Um, and they're what everyone has to look at. Um, whereas everything else... Or, or certainly a lot of the other things like equipment and, you know, how many locations you use and how expensive those locations are, they're not necessarily going to improve things. They just it's just a film with better locations. Right. It doesn't necessarily means it's it's a good film. Um, so, and and for the studios, of course, they're thinking about money. So, and actors and stars do make the money back better than anything else. You know, mm -hmm. so I'm trying to bit trying to follow that kind of uh that model a little bit so i i guess if we're talking about like a pie chart breaking it down um i think it's usually like a, th a third on sound mm -hmm. because everyone says sound is 50 percent um or spielberg said that and uh a lot of people I, always I, forget about sound that is that's still mind-boggling yeah. for me i mean i i remember i did a couple of of, of gigs back in london and the sound budget is always the lowest and i never understood that so so you know having a really good person on set to do mm -hmm. sound or you know two people minimum um just it's huge to have someone with really good ears so that they can point out any airplanes going past so that they just i mean basically if you if you spend a a decent proportion then you'll have no trouble with the sound and you'll end up with you know or every take the sound is 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 usable and and good from you know from two different microphones and that's just like that's just ideal you know yeah. it, it's it, it gets out of the way and it just allows you to have crisp high quality for for everything which makes a huge difference and then, of course, post-production as well, which I haven't actually, on my own projects, spent money on post-production sound. But I think next time that will be, I'll make <laughs> that a priority. Um, because, again, sound design and ambiences and just it just adds so much realism, so much, um, it really immerses and just just takes everything, like, two steps forward. Right. Um, 
in a really intangible way but it's it's yeah incredible mm. so sound ideally would end it would be 50 percent of the total budget mm. um and i guess you could include music in that um but i think in honesty i i don't think i've ever actually reached 50 percent mm. uh, <laughs> i think i've got close but not quite right. um and then the next biggest chunk would be actors um so again you know d depending on the budget but like um having less actors so you can pay the actors more that is a that works quite well often mm. or just obviously ha having a few extras that, that don't cost much and then making sure that for the main parts you you know go out there put out a, a casting call with a bit more money on it because that will just you know it will attract the the better people mm. um and i've i've seen you know firsthand how much of a difference that makes um <laughs> definitely a few recent projects i i tried to uh i tried to skimp a little bit on actors and uh we ended up and we spent more time on set trying to get the right performance and in the end it just it just wasn't as good because um you have to be a very talented director to get a good performance out yeah. of uh, a not so good actor yeah. um so yeah that's the other huge one and then you know logistics if 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 those people need um hotel rooms travel you need insurance though that that stuff adds up yeah. um food overall um i think on on my projects we usually end up spending at least 80% on on people hmm. whether that's actors or crew or things for those people like like food and accommodation and travel and i but i i think that's you know that's the best way to go to yeah. to be able to collaborate to be able to um have high quality people rather than just high quality equipment well said so so uh so yeah i've i we will rent like some audio gear and maybe one one piece of gear if it's really specifically needed but otherwise i try and use my own stuff which as we've covered is uh, has not been upgraded for a while <laughs> so, it's, so it's all good yeah how long have you had that camera for? Uh, so it's it's as old as my YouTube channel. Right. So I think four, four and a half years now. Four and a half years. Uh, I do have two of them because hmm. I do a lot of behind the scenes. But um, but yeah, still like still hasn't broken and still like it, it's the same camera it was when I bought it. And that's yeah. the thing people seem to like the idea of a camera becoming obsolete it's quite i don't fully understand that <laughs> um because yes you know 4k is becoming more and more it's of trend now isn't it the i mean it's it's not the standard is it 4k still isn't the standard yeah, no. by any means but it's becoming people more and more people think they need it yeah. um but like even even as society changes and we have a higher appreciation for things like that doesn't make your camera worse um and for the general audiences, I don't think their standards are raising that, oh, getting that much higher. Right. So, like, the camera that you bought five years ago, unless it's broken, is still just as good as it was when you bought it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Again, it still comes down to, like, how how well you can actually tell a story just through, I, I guess, for, for this topic, I guess, um, how you can tell a story just through the movement of a camera and placement of camera and how you light it and stuff. Because mm. um, I, I think I read... Um, I read an article a while ago saying like uh, the the oldies who who went to uh, you know film school and stuff you know they you know they were shooting on like VHS and stuff like that which obviously is not 
the same as like shooting on let's say a high-end camera or something back then right whereas now it's like anyone can kind of just pick up any camera and just be like uh, you know i'm a cinematographer i'm a dp you know i mean like with me i do a lot of camera work as well but i wouldn't say i'm like super 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 experienced you know i, I feel like i still there's a lot to learn but it's just kind of easy to kind of fall um fall into into that like it's really easy to kind of convince yourself that mm-hmm. um that yeah that you you just know something about cinema just because you know you have some high-end camera which i think it's it's a little bit dangerous in, in some way because then it's you know you just get people who who know a lot about cameras and have like an amazing camera but really you know they're just you know I, I don't know like if you're going to hire someone like that to try to tell a story he might not know exactly how to convey that emotionally to the audience or something oh yeah for sure and and even on even on the like even on the shallow basis of just if you are if if you're if your only measure of someone is like how good can they make the images look um which obviously is you know only a tiny tiny portion but like mm-hmm. even if you judge them on that then a lot of a lot of people um you know, or if if you're a beginner and you buy yourself a really nice camera, then yes, if you go and shoot at sunset and or you find good lighting, it will look good. And you can easily cut a reel, you know, yeah. that's really sharp. It's 4K, and you got cut yourself a two-minute reel of your best work. But that does not mean that you're ready to go and shoot a real <laughs> film in real yeah. circumstances, you know. Yeah. And and because those it will fall apart the second that the lighting changes or that you need to shoot, you know, you need to get coverage of a full room and suddenly yeah. there's a window there and, you know, they're backlit by the window in a, in a bad way. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the other thing that I think we see a lot of is like people buying nice cameras, shooting in natural light. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of inconsistent almost mm. um, because that, that base level of like experience or knowledge i mean just just isn't there yet um and i suppose back back in the day people they would have stopped and learned more because it would because it would all look bad uh and now we kind of get to convince ourselves that it does look good yeah. um so you don't have to work as hard which which yeah. is interesting but having said that i mean you being um not only the founder of dslr guide but also a director uh, what is it specifically that you're looking for in a DP when it comes to films and and just movies in general? I mean, I'll, I'll qualify this by saying I don't I don't work with DPs every day. But uh, for me, for me personally, um, you, you you want someone who you can you you trust enough in their work that you could just leave them to do their thing and that they're that you're not going to be micromanaging. Um, and and that's as much about me or or that's as much about the director as it is the dp but but so it's a, it's a two-way thing but if but you need to believe in their work and them be good enough and you be relaxed enough to let them just do their thing but then also it's great if they can be a if they can have their own ideas and and actually challenge your ideas because those kind of discussions are are really valuable when to be honest a lot of people on set don't challenge the director for kind of obvious reasons uh, and that's that's great but you do need some people who to kind of question trust and who, who yeah yeah and and people who you know again people who know what they're talking about people who have been there from early on in the project who understand you know what the vision is but like yeah. but to to then have that person who can say 
you know, uh, we need we need coverage of this. Even if I'm thinking now, we, you know, if we we don't need that close up. We'll and they and they say actually, well, look, let's it won't take long. Let's get the close up. You never know. And then it's like, yeah, okay, you're right. That's the simplest, like you know, the, the smallest example. But then all the way to the much like more conceptual stuff they can get involved in too. So yeah, it's great to have someone to bounce ideas off, someone who can challenge you. Obviously, they're also, as well as a kind of an artist and a technician, they're also a leader. Mm. So if they can help managing with managing people in you know, in all ways, because there's only so much one person can do. If they can be a voice to, to um, obviously if if you have camera assistants, then obviously they're, they're looking after them but also you know to to help communicate with the actors to help just in in all in all regards um it's helpful if if they are good with people and good at communication the classics well so because uh it's really funny because i had a few experiences where i would um when i when i was hired to do sound um mm -hmm. you know like the dp would not be the best person to be communicating with because it's just because they were i guess the film people were always kind of like in their own world you know yeah. like you know he'll just say yeah you know i'm gonna shoot it like this and then he doesn't really communicate to me so effectively that i don't know where to place mics or where to stand and stuff like that and obviously it wastes a lot of time so i think i think it is I, exactly what you said i think it's very important for a dp to actually communicate properly to to everyone as well as as a leader and not just a director are you are you actually planning on doing um your next short film because I, I remember last time we had like a like a skype meeting you were saying that <laughs> it's not really something that's that's happening at the moment for for reasons yeah kind of at the moment i'm i'm kind of uh working on a lot of different projects but but for the last little while none of them have ended up being uh narrative short mm. films sure so i do have a project coming up which I'm directing, but it's more of a kind of non-fiction or kind of commercial kind of kind of project. Um, so, but you know, that'll still be on set time. That'll still be working with with a crew and on you know, on set and deadlines and all that kind of stuff. Right. That's not you know that's a bit bigger than just me by myself making YouTube videos. Right. Um, but yeah, as far as actual narrative short films, that is something that is that is on the horizon, but not in the not in the sh near future hmm. um and and that's a weird thing actually like I, I don't know if you have this way like I've, I've i guess it's like a voice in your mind saying hey you really should have done another short film by now <laughs> hey you really should have like entered into a film festival by now or got in or you know had some success by now you really should have like it's this this like you should have done this you should have done that by now do, do you do you have something like that for yeah yeah kind of projects yeah yeah um many times especially like i you know because like i kind of with me some uh, i mean for the people who are out there who don't really know um i shift a lot like through being a sound engineer and also a filmmaker as well so i'm kind of like doing yeah. both and it's really um i guess when i'm working on one and not so much with the other i start mm -hmm. like questioning my, myself on these things like ah i think i should have done that i, should, I, should, I think i should have done this I should have done that you know and kind of like this doubt but it's weird like like where does where do these where do these come from like why like obviously there is every time you make something there's there's value as far as learning and and as far as making progress right. but like where is this arbitrary thing of like that you have to make a short film you know once every 6 months or that you have to have to like as long as you're making stuff mm. um 
I don't know. Some somehow it's it's like this, it's like a weird, it's like a weird voice inside of you. But yeah, or like a a, a pressure. A pressure. Yeah, it's yeah, not exactly. it's not coming from anyone real. Yeah, it's not coming. It's not. There's no one actually holding me to it. And sometimes it's like it's it's useful on 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 plenty of occasions. Yeah. But like if if you're being creatively fulfilled by the projects you're working on, whether that's fiction, non-fiction, commercials, you know, whatever, then like I yeah, think that, I, I guess it's just one of the things of like yeah. having being in the uh, the fortunate position to be able to have relative freedom to you know basically being self-employed like you you do get to choose what you work on in in, yeah. in many regards yeah. uh and so that just means that you're probably always going to be saying oh i should be working on this i should be doing <laughs> that i should be doing less of these and more of those to what point do you feel like it's like well i really want to work with these brands but even if this brand is so big when is the point where you, where to you you feel like I should say no to this, where, where to people like, for example, me, I'll be like, man, that's a huge opportunity. You should do something with these guys, you know? There are plenty of reasons to say no to a brand. Yeah, I think I do say no or ignore most of most of the emails that come through as far as, you know, people wanting to do a, a brand a brand integration. Um, right. And... And, and I think that's I think that's that's a good a good thing to be rejecting most of them. Yeah. So one reason would be like the ethics of the company. There have been companies that like, they they do these free trials, and they'll sign up for a really short free trial, um, but then if you forget to cancel the trial, then not only do they ch charge you to, for a full account, which is like that's that's the standard that business model that loads of loads of them use. Right. But I believe they didn't actually notify people when 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 it was coming oh okay and then they also put you onto a really like a ridiculously high um it was like 10 times higher than the normal monthly amount right. so they put you straight onto the deluxe package right instead of <laughs> instead of the one that everyone would get so basically they they created this entire p package purely for those people who forget so they could rinse them as much money as possible right, right. and that was like okay that's you know I, I, I don't want to work with you guys. Right. Um, on a similar level, like Audible, I, I, don't, I will never do a, a uh, sponsorship with Audible or Amazon because of their all their tax, uh, clever tax schemes and how they treat their workers and exploiting, you know, and all that, all that kind of stuff of Amazon. Right. Um, so, so that's kind of like the first kind of port of call is like, can I can I live with myself by supporting these people basically because that's what brand deals do is they make money for for those people mm. those companies so that's kind of the first the first thing or I I, I like to think it would be my first port of call mm. um, that's the goal at least but then probably the next thing is are, are they is what they're asking for reasonable mm. um, so the the ideal situation is where they say look we understand that you You've been doing this for a while. You know your audience better than we know your audience. So rather than us give you a script, or rather than us tell you what to do, we're just gonna we just say, look, here's the product, or here's the the, the website. Just just do do what you want, and they just have they have no involvement at all. That's the ideal. Right. Um, to give you complete it, creative freedom to to yes. uh, to do the treatment. Right. In every contract I've signed, it always says that I retain all creative control and that I. I can say whatever I want in the video, mm. um, and and that uh, they after after publishing the video they they don't see the video before it goes live, and after it's been published they can't tell me to take it down. So right. so that that is a really important thing, and 
I, you know, it's, it's a bit surprising in some ways, but we've, we've managed to negotiate that in, yeah. in I think, all cases. Hmm. Um, but of course, then there will, in some cases, be stipulations that you can do whatever you want as long as you just mention the name of the product or, you know, say this particular thing. And, and right, that's, right. Uh, but, but aside from that, you could still say, uh, you could still say negative things about it if you wanted to. <laughs> um, so, so that's the, probably the next thing. It's like, you know, are they, is it, is there freedom and, you know, bluntly, if they're asking you to do, you know, for $50, then it's not going to happen. And then of course there's, I mean, I could go on with this for ages. I don't know how interested you are. <laughs> no, no, this is really interesting. So yeah, there are, there are so many different things. Of course, yeah. a, a, a big consideration has got to be, are the people who watch my videos in any way interested in this product? Hmm. The ideal one is one that is such a cool product, such a cool website, whatever, that you would recommend it to a friend in in a real situation you know right. that's that's the ideal um and then of course there are some which is like you know I, I i see what they're doing and you know i i wouldn't go out of my way on a normal day to to promote it for free but but i'm still happy to work with them you know i think people would be i i can i see that there are some people who would have value from this um mm. but of course what you don't want to be doing is promoting a product that is no one's the people aren't going to be interested in so i wouldn't do uh a, a fashion if a fashion company came to me and said hey will you promote our clothes i, I wouldn't do that because yeah. that's not what my videos are about yeah. and similarly of course if it's a, a really bad product or a you know uh just over, overly priced or, or whatever then that's a consideration too the default answer is no yeah. um and then we have to we have to basically uh, trust that if you say no to this one, even if it's going to pay well, you have to trust that um, that more will come by. Yeah. Um, and I certainly haven't got it right every time. Um, I had a recent video that uh, got 50% dislikes because people didn't like the brand that I promoted or they didn't like the way I did it for whatever reason. Yeah. And so that was a real reminder that, okay, you know, you need to be more be more stringent and be think more carefully because at the end of the day like when money's on the table you you can't be a hundred percent objective you can't uh it'd be it's impossible to not think of yourself and think of you know the kind of projects you could fund with that yeah. that money but that so that specifically was a real reminder to uh kind of raise the standards right. <laughs> um, but sorry but was this incident um because of um, you thought that this product would have benefit your audience or was it because like, oh, the deal was, was great and I think I can do something cool with this, but then, then it backfired and it didn't really work out. So yeah, it was, it was both. I think, right. um, every, every brand deal, you hope that people would be interested in the product. You can't know for sure. Um, and every project, every brand deal you think, great, the money will be useful so that I can keep doing this. Don't have to go get a, a day job. Mm. or you know, that's on the basic level or in a you know expand and and make more things make bigger things make cooler things um but in that particular case it was i think yeah i think i i i looked more at the money than i did whether <laughs> people would actually respect this brand yeah. um and or maybe i didn't research the brand enough to see what kind of you know what public opinion was but yeah so mm. It was a, definitely a learning experience. <laughs> I kind of wanted to touch upon the fact of how people kind of balance their life between work, 
create or creative work in this in this case with their personal life. I, I think it would be kind of cool to explore how you uh, how you personally balance your your work life with your personal life, like with your family and stuff like that. Because it's very this, difficult. It's very difficult yeah. to separate like uh, what you what you consider as work because it's not really work. It's like it's it's still you're still having fun. So it's like when where's the line where you kind of have to say, well, this time is for work and this time is personal time. For, I mean, for me, it's, it's it's quite easy to to separate them. Um, mm. Or it's quite, it's quite like to to know what's work and what's not work. You know. Uh, you know, hanging out with friends is not work. Uh, and even if it's the most fun film shoot, even if it's writing a script and being and being just absolutely enjoying it, I, I still see that as work. Um, so classifying it is easy, but A, deciding how much time to spend on each, and then B, actually sticking to what you want, <laughs> those, are, those are the tough ones. Right. Um, and that's the thing that I think will take a lifetime to... to even begin to kind of do correctly now that i'm doing this full time it's it's easier or it's improved hmm. because previously i was i was in school full time and then i was making videos on the side hmm. uh which is almost like an, another full-time job so now that just doing the one um that is that's definitely that's definitely better hmm. um so so there you go going full-time <laughs> is a uh, that that's one option that's uh, if if that if that can can be made to work, but but really I I do think like this creative stuff will fill as much time as you give it. So like in many ways it hasn't got easier or it's I, it's still just, it would still be just as easy to uh, spend an entire day working and not see another human being, um, being being self-employed, being uh, working on creative stuff. Like there there is no just you know start at 9 9 a.m and once it gets to 5 p.m go right i'm done and right. just there's no disconnect you can't just like finish and say well you know my my time is up um because you know that if you stay for an extra hour the project will be a bit better by right. that hour or at least that's the theory it does not necessarily true but so for, i mean for me personally i suppose i can only talk from experience um the reference i come from i think is the same as most people which is that the natural is to be a workaholic and then uh, the the goal is to have a more healthy work-life balance. I, it, I'm guessing from uh, from the conversations we've had that you'd, that you'd agree with that. Uh, <laughs> is that is that your situation too? Yeah, yeah. I actually um, a few year a few years ago um, when I went back home, I was just on my laptop and I was just doing you know normal things where I didn't actually see it as work. But then uh, my sister came up to me and she was just like. Danny, you're a workaholic. You need to take breaks. <laughs> I was just like, I'm just doing this. You, you've been on this for eight hours. You know, just like, oh. Yeah. And, and then it kind of like clicked that I had to kind of um, balance out, you know, like, I guess, yeah, your personal life with, with what's considered as, as, as work. I think it's just when you go to the point where if you're sitting around way too long, it's like what you said, then I think then it'll be a little bit concerning. But I think it's just like mm. you kind of need that space as well sometimes, I guess. For, it's it's very difficult because sometimes I feel like when I talk about this with with other people, I feel like I'm just trying to tell myself, like, it's okay to procrastinate. And I don't know if, <laughs> if I'm procrastinating too long, you know. And I'll be like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. You know, it, it, it's part of the creative process, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the ultimate excuse for... for the lazy brain isn't it oh no this, this is good don't worry this is actually yeah. helpful yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just really interesting to kind of pick pick someone's brain like 
Yeah, like yeah, totally. I, I mean, yeah, I, I love talking about all this, all the like, the tough parts that you know because. You always, yeah, hear, I mean, that's, you always hear that's the exact. good. You always hear the good stuff online. You know, you never yeah. hear the bad stuff, and it's just like, well, you know, you, you kind of want to. I mean, for me anyway, I like to hear these kind of stories as well. Which, of course, thank you for for sharing. So it's good to kind of like, oh, you know, you you're not the only one. You know, and like, and it's, yeah, you know, it's it's great. It's great on, from from all angles, from 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 all perspectives to 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 be able to to have a place to talk about the tough things. Yeah, but. Uh, and to hear other people, and you know, and to hear that 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 you you know you understand what I'm talking about, you you feel it too, you know. That's yeah. like that is it's encouraging in a, in a in a kind of strange way, isn't it? Yeah. Well, again, uh, Simon, thank you for sharing your time with us. You know, it's always great to hang out with you on 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 Skype. Well, in this case, on Skype, but we're recording. But yeah, it's always cool to actually hang out with you on. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's been good fun. Yeah, it's been really good fun. Well, thank you very much again, man. No problem at all. We'll do this again sometime. So that wraps up my first podcast ever on the interwebs. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. Of course, thank you, Simon, for joining us and sharing your thoughts with us. So there's going to be more podcasts like this in the near future. So if you guys enjoyed it, just hit the subscribe button below and keep up to date. And I'll see you guys in the next video. And until then, keep on creating, keep on inspiring.